Our God and Father, Lord, we praise you today. We ascribe worth and glory and honor to you, Lord. We have gathered to worship you and to sing praises to you and to rejoice in the great things that you have done for us in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are so grateful, God, for the salvation that you have given to us freely by your grace, that, Lord, you have redeemed us from death. Lord, you have bought us back from sin. Lord, you have delivered us from the power of Satan and brought us into your kingdom of peace. Oh, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your goodness. We ask that today, Lord, as we look into your word, that you would help us to see more clearly your plan of redemption through the ages, that, God, you would help us to uh, think with sober judgment about the things that are soon coming upon the earth. And, God, I pray that whoever would be within the sound of my voice would hear the things that you have written for us in Holy Writ, And that, God, they would respond with repentance and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, that they might be saved. Oh, Lord, I pray that these things would cause great fear. Oh, Lord, that we would see the things that you have warned us about. And that, God, our eyes would be opened and that we would understand with with what finality you are to bring judgment upon this earth. God, Help us to see clearly. And Lord, help us to know that there is a refuge in our Lord Jesus Christ and that he is the only refuge from the wrath that is to come. And so God, help us to be about the business of warning and persuading people to come to the Lord Jesus while there is yet time. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in this place and to freely proclaim your word. We honor you and we bless you because of Jesus' holy cross. Amen. Okay. So with that, we're back in 1 Thessalonians. And there is a new handout today, by the way. It's number 55. You had a 55 last week, but now there's a 56 on the back. So the other thing is, you might want to dig this out. This is a chart that I gave you maybe about... 12 weeks ago or something like that. We've got premillennialism on one side. On the back side, it says the kingdom of God, stages of consummation. Uh, you might want to look at that. It's a bigger picture of things we're talking about today. And uh, today we come to verse 18 of chapter 4, which is the last verse of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. And um, that ends the little section of text that really kind of starts at chapter 4, verse 13, and ends at chapter 4, verse 18. Paul starts that discourse by uh, talking about those who have fallen asleep, or if you will, those who have died who are in Christ. And he's making the point that we don't have to grieve like those who have no hope because at the second coming of Christ we're going to be united together with all the believers. And not only that, but at that time, when the Lord comes in his glory, 
we are going to be united to him forever. And so it is in this little passage where Paul gives us the most vivid description of the second coming that he describes anywhere, if you will, uh, particularly dealing with the very moment that Christ returns. And, uh, and so that's what we've been studying for the last three weeks, is the section of text between chapter 4, verse 15, chapter 4, verse 17. And uh, there, of course, we see the Lord himself coming down from heaven. He's attended by angels and trumpets. He's coming in the clouds with power and with great glory, and he is going to raise the dead. And then at that time, he will, right after that, translate the living believers to meet him and the dead in Christ who have been raised in the air. And the scripture says, so shall we be with the Lord forever. If you will, we see the fallen world that is wracked with sin and death and mourning and pain around us coming to a final end for those of us who are in Christ when Christ returns again. Are you with me? And of course, this gives us tremendous hope. It gives us tremendous encouragement because we know that the sin and the suffering and the death that continues on in this world is going to come to its final end. And especially for those who are in Christ, it is going to come to its final end at, at the very moment that Christ returns again. And so that's why with great hope and with eager expectation, we look forward to that day. We realize that our lives here are temporal and that the suffering and the affliction that we face in this life and in this fallen world is only temporary. Our great hope is far beyond the grave into eternity where we shall live in eternal bliss in the presence of God forever in the home of righteousness where there is no more sin, no more dying, no more crying, and no more pain. Amen? Amen. The Christian hope can never fail. We are very, very near to our salvation. The end of all things is near, Peter says in chapter 4, verse 7 of his first letter. Okay, it's coming soon. (laughs) Are you with me? This is a little light and momentary affliction we're facing here, people. But if your hope is in Christ, let me tell you. Eternal glory awaits us. Amen? And and, and what greater hope could we have? That That the grave has been conquered, that death has been conquered, and that there's going to come a final end to suffering and any kind of, 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 of negative thing or enemy that plagues us. And that, that the Lord himself is going to bring this about according to his own word. Amen? And how sure our confidence is. Amen? And so Christians look to this as, as the, 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 uh, the rock. It's our blessed hope. It's the thing we look to. Because now sin and suffering and death has plagued us. Amen? But it shall not always be, right? For the Lord is coming with the voice of the archangel and with a loud command, amen? And he's going to break into this world and he's going to take us to be where he is. That's our hope, amen? And a blessed hope it is. Would you agree? Okay, so that's the things that Paul just described to us in chapter 4. Now, in the first part of chapter 5, 
He's going to go on talking more about this second coming. But now he's going to refer to it in terms of the day of the Lord. And he's not only that, he's going to begin to describe what happens to those who are left behind. He's going to begin to describe uh, what happens to those who aren't caught up in the air. And uh, if you will, uh, he's going to add more revelation to what happens at the second coming. And if you will, <clears throat> he, uh, he uh, begins to refer to this as the day of the Lord. And this we'll see in the first few verses of chapter 5. However, before we move on there, we want to look at verse 18, which says this very simply, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And if you will, this is kind of how he ends that little discourse about the second coming and about our great deliverance by the Lord, right? He says, comfort one another, encourage one another, strengthen one another with these words. Because no matter how bad your suffering is now, there's coming a day when it's going to end. Amen? And uh, so, if you will, I suppose of all the comforting words that we Christians possess, none are so profound as these, that is verses 15 through 17, which tell us of our ultimate future beyond the grave and describe our eternal destiny with closure and finality. Not only do we not grieve as them who have no hope, but on the contrary, we have great hope that our future lies in the hands of the powerful and sovereign God who has purpose to save us from sin and death and cause us to stand in his presence without fault and with great joy when he comes again to finally deliver his people from this sin-cursed and fallen world which we now live in. Moreover, it is at this point in history that his people will be eternally united to him and we are glorified together with him on that day. There could be no greater hope than to have a sure victory over that great enemy death which has plagued us with its woes since we have fallen into sin. On this basis then, Paul states, therefore, comfort one another with these words. These promises are in fact a very comforting and reassuring truth that can give us hope and encouragement even in our darkest trials and on our bleakest day. We are therefore to actually speak this truth to grieving and downcast Christians when so needed, that things will not always suffer and grieve, but that a brighter and everlasting day is soon approaching, and this day will come with power from the God who is all-powerful and has promised to bring it to pass with glory, might, and finality. So you have to understand what Paul has said. He is saying very clearly and distinctly that the suffering of this life for Christians is going to end on a given day in time, and that that is going to happen when God himself descends from heaven in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and very powerfully breaks into this world and delivers us from the suffering and the death of this world. And at that time, we shall be glorified. We shall put on immortality, and we shall never again be subject to death. That is a final, final victory for the believer. Amen? Amen. The very sin that you loathe, 
that haunts you and plagues you every day in your sinful nature, you will be rescued completely from its effect. No longer shall it dog you. No longer shall it chase you. No longer shall it cause you doubt and fear. Amen? This is the Lord's promise to us, and a very encouraging promise it is. Even the Lord himself, on the night before he was crucified, encouraged with this truth. In John 14, verses 1 and following, he says to his disciples there, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. Amen? And of course, I suppose this is the sweetest part of it all. So shall we be with the Lord forever. Amen? Well, that brings us to chapter 5. And uh, there, starting in verse 1 and 2, Paul writes and says, Now, okay, now think about what's happened here. He's been talking to the Thessalonians and trying to encourage them because they are under severe affliction, right? And yet there are zealous Christians who love God, who are serving him with all their heart and making many sacrifices for him. And Paul is writing to them. Uh, they haven't had any real leadership there to speak of, right? They have been under severe affliction. And Paul is writing to encourage them. And in so doing, he keeps mentioning this second coming throughout the letter. And then as he kind of gets to the end of the letter, and he says, finally now I'm going to kind of tell you the scoop here. And then he describes the second coming. And he says, look, it's not always going to be this way for you. The Lord is going to come. He's going to deliver you from your suffering. He's going to deliver you from your affliction. And we're going to be with the Lord forever. And you need to fix your eyes upon that hope, especially when you're suffering the persecution and the pains of, 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 uh, of, uh, of Christ's name. Amen? Amen. And so he, with that, he's encouraging them. And then when he speaks of their deliverance to come with the Lord, he also speaks of the retribution that the Lord brings. And as he's doing this, he does give us some chronology, right? You remember how we talked about there is a little bit of chronology that Paul gives here where he says, the Lord's going to descend from heaven, right? Then the dead in Christ will rise, right? And after that, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we be with the Lord forever, right? Now he's going to begin to talk to them about uh, the imminent return of the Lord. And he's going to try to describe kind of what he means by that. Um, and, and beyond that, he's, gonna, he's going to talk about what happens to those who are left behind, and so, <clears throat> uh, in verse 1, he writes and says, Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And so, Paul makes this statement, he says, Look, concerning the timing of these things, Concerning the way that these things kind of work out in history, right? 
he, 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 he does this thing again. He brings them to their own knowledge of these things. Remember how throughout the book he kept saying to them, and you know, and as you know, and you know full well, right? Because he had taught them these things. And he had told them that the Lord was going to come suddenly. And that they were to be in eager expectation of that day. And so here again, he reminds them after describing the second coming to them that this same truth is going to happen. The Lord is going to come suddenly. Concerning the timing of these great events mentioned in verse 4, 15 through 17, Paul explains that they had ample knowledge. He states, Now as to the time and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. The words here for times and epochs clearly speak of the timing and order of these events. Paul again employs that tactic he had used with several times earlier in this letter where he calls them to account of their own knowledge saying, you yourselves know full well. So he says concerning the timing of these things, you have no need for anyone to write to you, right? For you yourselves know full well. I taught you these things. You know these things. We talked about them. And it's obvious when Timothy came back to you and talked to you and addressed your fears and your doubts and so on, that you knew that the Lord was going to come suddenly, even like a thief in the night, right? Uh, He wants them to recall the truths he had formerly taught them and hear specifically that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Even Paul himself did not know the day or the hour of Christ's return. And he points out here that this truth is plain. It was surely taught by Jesus himself. Now, the Lord, when he gave us teaching, he gave us extensive teaching about his second coming in the Olivet Discourse. And, uh, of course, in the book of Luke, there is several passages where Jesus gives us instruction about his second coming that's even outside of the Olivet Discourse. But nevertheless, this truth is reaffirmed by the Lord several times in the Gospels. And so, for example, in Matthew 24, verse 36, he says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Or in Acts chapter six, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, there it says, And so when they had come together, they were asking him and saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times and epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And so, if you will, right, they, here they are asking Jesus right before his ascension, Lord, uh, you know, now you've come, you've died, you've rose again, you're, you're in your glorified state, and here you are appearing to us disciples. Are you going to bring the kingdom now? And here's what Jesus does. Time out. Time out, guys. Wait. Hold off. Wait. It's not for you to know (laughs) when the kingdom is going to come. Right? Of course, from there he goes on and he says, that was verse 6 and 7. What does verse 8 say? Anybody recall? Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, right? In Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Right? And and so he's saying, wait a minute, time out. God has a plan. <laughs> Hang on. The kingdom's not coming just yet. First, you need to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Right? 
Thus we have what? The church age. The times of the Gentiles. The preaching of the gospel. It's been going on for 2,000 years now. Amen? Okay. So, of these times and epochs, right? It is explicitly taught by the Lord Jesus that we do not know the day that the Lord is returning. We especially don't know the hour that the Lord is returning. Are you with me? It's very clear in Scripture. This should cancel any fancy notions by people setting dates of Christ's return, which is usually a ploy to garner a following and the financial benefits derived thereof. On the contrary, Paul explains that God has designed the second coming of Christ to overtake the unbelieving world unawares, stating that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. He goes on to explain, however, in verses 3 through 5, that Christ's coming will not overtake Christians in this way because, although we do not know the exact day or hour, the season of his coming will be very apparent to those discerning Christians who know full well the signs of his coming and of the end of the age. The main focus of Jesus telling us this was to cause us to be on the alert and to be ready for his return, expectantly waiting and busy about his business with the treasure and talents he has entrusted to us. So see the comments on verses 4 and 5 for a more extensive explanation. So, if you will, the return of the Lord is imminent. Okay? He is coming, and he is coming soon. And he warns us that he's coming soon and that we are to be on the alert and be ready for his coming. Amen? Uh, However, he does explain that it's only the unbelieving world which will be overtaken as a thief in the night. But that in, in, in verses 4 and 5, he explains that we Christians shall not be overtaken in such a way. Why? Because we are on the alert and we realize that he is coming again and we are following the instruction that he's giving us about his signs, about the signs of his coming and of the end of the age which he so clearly and explicitly told his disciples. And then he said, look, I've told you in advance. And I've warned you to be on the alert. And I've warned you to be like that guy who, if he knew what time the thief was going to break in, he wouldn't let the thief break in, would he? No, he'd be ready. right? If he had an idea when the thief was going to come, he'd be there with a baseball bat. Bop him on the head. Right? So, if you will, he's going to go on and make this clear for us. But consider some of the things the Lord has said about this. How about Matthew 24, verse 42 through 44? He says there, this is, of course, after he has described his second coming, and he's giving further instruction about it. He says, therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you be ready too. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. So what's he saying? He's saying you need to be ready. Why? 
Because you don't know specifically the day or the hour. Amen? Crystal clear in the Lord's teaching. So you say, well, I'm a little confused by that. Well, hang on. We're going to get there. Paul's going to clear that up for us. Okay? It is significant that Paul equates the parousia or the coming of Christ with the Old Testament terms, the day of the Lord. So what he has said in these verses is this. Of the times and epochs, brethren, we, need, uh, we don't need to write to you, for you yourselves know full well what? That the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Okay? Now, he's equating this um, coming of the Lord with the terms the day of the Lord. Do you see that? So he's just described that the Lord is going to come, and now he refers to that as the day of the Lord. Now, that's very significant. Okay? It's very significant because in the Old Testament, there is an event that's spoken of by many prophets in many places, which is termed the day of the Lord. And that day of the Lord, if you will, is the, is the day that the prophets point to when God's final judgment, his day of reckoning, will come to the world. Okay? And so Paul brings up this term. And uh, so... So that you can be educated about what that is, I grabbed some scriptures from the Old Testament that describe in the language of the prophets what this day of the Lord is. So by doing this, Paul makes it clear that the events spoken of in the Old Testament concerning the day of the Lord will happen at the second coming of Christ. So for example, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 13 and following, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I shall make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. If you will, that's Isaiah's rendering in chapter 13. Joel writes of the same thing. He says in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. <clears throat> there has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it, to the years of many generations." Joel continues on later in that chapter, in chapter 2, verse 30 and following. It says there, And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Obadiah, in verse 15, speaks of the day of the Lord. He says, For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations, 
As you have done it, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. These have got to be the most fierce words in all of the Bible. I know there's some fierce words in the Bible, but this is definitely one of those places. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. And I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Peter writes of something very similar in chapter 3 and verse 10 of Second Peter. He says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. If you will, Peter says the earth is going to be baptized in fire. Now, there are other places in the prophets where the specific words day of the Lord are not necessarily used, but these events are described. For example the whole of Isaiah 24 is uh, a description of what God does to the earth and to the sinners on the earth. Uh, There is Isaiah chapter 34 where these things are spoken of again. Isaiah chapter 2. I mean, it just, you know, it, it appears all through the prophets. There are many other places where these things appear and not necessarily called the day of the Lord. But uh, nevertheless, uh, also I wanted to mention Jeremiah. Jeremiah has got four or five or six different places where these events are spoken of explicitly in, in his, his prophecies. So <clears throat> this is a very profound idea that comes from the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. And you can see as I was reading how some of that language is even... Uh, present in the Lord's Olivet Discourse, isn't it? Some of the very things that he said, right? For example, the sun won't shine, the moon won't shine, right? The stars will fall from the sky. This kind of language is what Jesus says is going to happen at his second coming, right? So note well here the severity of the full scope of events described in these passages. It is obvious that the full scope of these events cannot all happen immediately upon the second coming of Christ, for the whole earth will be destroyed, and this will not take place until the end of the millennial kingdom. Okay, now that was a mouthful. I want you to get this, okay? I just read to you where in the prophets, in the day of the Lord, Peter says, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. 
Zephaniah says, On the day of the Lord's wrath, all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all of the inhabitants of the earth. Okay, if you read in Zephaniah, the first few verses, God says, Behold, I will sweep man and beast off the face of the earth. Okay, and, and the, the, the point of the matter is that the full scope of the events of the day of the Lord is something that destroys the entire earth and everything and everyone on it. Okay, so I'm making this point. That cannot happen before the millennial kingdom begins. Because if it does, there won't be any nations to populate the earth. And there won't be any Israel for God to restore the land. Okay? So my point is, there's going to be survivors in Israel, there's going to be survivors in the nations who survive, if you will, the initial judgments of God that come to pass when the day of the Lord is inaugurated. Okay? Now this puzzled me for years. I used to, because I knew what the, the scripture said about the day of the Lord, and I used to think, well, how will anything be left in the millennial kingdom if this stuff happens during the day of the Lord's judgment? And so through studying and reading and praying and trying to understand, I came to understand that the day of the Lord is not just one single day. Okay? It's an age it is an age that is inaugurated at a certain point in history, and it is, a, it is an age that is consummated at a certain point in history. Okay, So here's what I'm telling you about my understanding of, of the day of the Lord. It's depicted, on this, um, it's depicted on this thing that says premillennialism for you. It's also depicted on the little chart that I've pasted into the document on page 55. Okay? So what I'm telling you is, is that the day of the Lord is inaugurated at the second coming of Christ. Okay? When that happens, Christ is going to, several things we know he's going to do, okay? He's going to destroy the Antichrist. We know that immediately when Christ returns, he's going to destroy the Antichrist and the false prophet. And what's he going to do with them? going to toss him into the lake of fire. And then he's going immediately to bind Satan with a great chain in the abyss so that he has no more influence over the nations. By the way, there's nations there for him not to have influence over. Okay? And, and so we know when Jesus comes, he's going to destroy the Antichrist, he's going to destroy the false prophet, and he's going to bind Satan in the abyss for a thousand years. Okay? Because he's got a big bad angel who can take that devil and stuff him in a hole. Yeah? I love that. I love that angel. <laughs> ah, he's a good angel. Man, he's a good angel. I don't know about you, but that makes me rejoice. <laughs> the devil stuffed in a hole. <laughs> Chains on him. Isn't that a glorious thought? Yes. Uh, I mean, he could destroy him uh, at that point, couldn't he? Okay, well, so in the course of history, yes, at the beginning of the millennium, he's going to bind him in the abyss. And, what you and it's, it says that it will, it will be shut and sealed over him for the express purpose that he does not have influence over the nations. Okay? Then when the thousand years is over, 
Okay, Satan will be released, it says, from his prison to deceive the nations once again, to gather the nations of mankind on the earth for a final rebellion, at which time the day of the Lord will be consummated. Here, at the end of the thousand years. This language is very explicit in Revelation chapter 20. It tells us exactly what happens. It says when the thousand years are over, Satan is released from his prison. He gathers the nations for a final rebellion. They gather to make war against the Lord. And it says there that the Lord destroys them. Okay? And it is immediately after that that the great white throne judgment is consummated and all the wicked dead from all the ages are raised for judgment before God. Thus is the second resurrection, the resurrection of the wicked unto judgment. Okay? And it is at that time, if you will, that the full scope of these events of the day of the Lord comes to pass. He destroys all the sinners on the face of the earth. He destroys the whole earth. Okay, this is what it says. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. And what? Heaven and earth fled from his presence. Okay? And, and from that point forward, the old creation is never seen again in the course of, of Revelation. Chapter 21 opens up right after the great white throne judgment. Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. Why? For the old heavens and the old earth had passed away. Are you with me? Which is what happens when Christ consummates the day of the Lord judgments. Okay? I'm saying if, if you try to say somehow that that happens at the beginning of the millennium, then you, uh, you can't have nations who are alive on the earth you understand what i'm saying it's a difficult prophecy problem a lot of prophecy teachers talk about it in different ways in my mind they really don't address it comprehensively Uh, i've never seen a chart like this where they're saying that using the day of the lord language where they're saying it starts here and it ends there Uh, it's just a way that came to me to try to under to explain it because i had to understand the truth it just didn't make sense to me. And I'm sure there's plenty of guys who've talked about it and drone charts like this. I just haven't seen them. Okay? But the fact of the matter is, if you're thinking and tracking with me logically, if everything we read in this Day of the Lord prophecies happened right here at the second coming of Christ at the beginning of the millennium, there wouldn't be any Israel and there wouldn't be any nations left to populate the earth. But we know from Revelation 20 very explicitly that there is nations who are alive on the earth at that time. Okay? Not only that, but the prophets tell us that Jesus will rule from his throne in Jerusalem over the nations of the earth. Psalm 2 says he's going to rule the nations with an iron scepter. Zechariah 14 says he's going to sit on his throne in Jerusalem. He's going to discipline the nations. If they don't obey and come up and worship, he ain't going to give them any rain. This kind of thing. Okay? He's going to rule over the nations in his kingdom on the earth. Okay? If God destroys all the people on the face of the earth, before that even happens, there won't be any people for him to rule over. Are you with me? Okay? So, that's why I'm telling you. The day of the Lord is something that happens when Jesus comes. It's his day. It's his day with a capital D. And it begins on a specific day in history, a specific day that no man knows the day or the hour. Okay? 
And when it begins, it will be inaugurated. And what Christ is going to do is going to destroy the Antichrist. He's going to destroy the false prophet. He's, and he is going to tear down all the authority, government, principality structures on the face of the whole earth. He's going to kill the kings of the earth. This language is right in Revelation chapter 19 at the second coming of Christ. And when he does that, he is going to then establish his own authority. He's going to establish his own government on the face of the earth. Okay? Now, I didn't tell you this last time, but this is when I believe the Bema Seat judgment will happen. As Christ begins to establish his kingdom and clean up the mess, and uh, he, he will then begin to apportion authority to his priests and kings who will reign over the earth. And that is when believers will be rewarded in the presence of Christ at, if you will, the inauguration of his throne in Jerusalem. Okay, so I think that's something he's going to do on the earth as he is establishing his, his government on the earth. Um, but uh, that's a lot of speculation. Okay, I can't take you to a scripture that says that the Bema Seat judgment is going to happen then and there. Okay, that's my own personal opinion. Yeah. We're in that timeline of the 144,000 Jews. We're in that timeline. It's the 144,000 Jews. When, when do they come on? During this time period right here. During the 70th week of Daniel. And they're Messianic Jews. Well, the text doesn't say that. No. no. But, but they're promoting Christ. No, the text does not say that. No. Okay. So there's a big controversy about the 144,000. Of course, they first they appear in Revelation chapter 7, then they appear again in Revelation chapter 14, uh, and there's some controversy about whether or not they're the same 144,000 or not. But what is spoken about them by, uh, for example, specifically dispensational premillennialists will say that they are a group of Jewish evangelists who are believers we're going out and preaching to the whole world the gospel, and, and people are being saved. Okay? The text does not say that. The text does not say they're believers. All it says is that they're sealed, okay, from the, come, from the coming judgments of God. It does say that. Okay? And um, uh, beyond that, you have speculation. So... There's a lot of speculation. One of the reasons why dispensationalists will say that these are Jewish evangelists preaching is because right after that, verses 13 and following of chapter 7, talks about a great multitude who's come out of the great tribulation uh, and, and that uh, they are before the, the Lamb singing the, the doxology. And uh, so it's, it's assumed by that little uh, section of text that these 144,000 went out and preached and uh, that people were a great multitude was saved under their ministry, and that um, uh, that great multitude is the multitude that's seen there singing the song of the Lamb and and uh, the deliverance that happens. That's all in chapter seven. Uh, I don't believe that. I don't believe those are Jewish evangelists. Um, I do believe there will be a great multitude saved through the great tribulation. Um, but that's because I see the church going through the tribulation. Okay? So the great multitude of people who are saved out of the tribulation 
is all of the elect who are called out prior to that and during that time. So, did I address that? Sorry. I'll take a couple more questions and then I'm going to move on. Any more? Well, because, uh, uh, for example, are we assuming because we know that there's going to be a 70th week before the coming of Christ, are we assuming somehow that we know exactly the day that's going to begin and exactly the day that's going to end? Well, some would say, yeah. Some would point to Daniel 9.27 and see, it says, see, it says here he will confirm a covenant, Right. And, and we're assuming that somehow that we know that the exact day of all these things are going to happen. Well, I, I don't agree with that. I, I don't think that it's necessarily going to be that clear. Not to mention, uh, many would argue that we won't really know about the Antichrist and who he is until the midpoint when the abomination of desolation occurs. Okay? And even at that point, my question would be, when those events are coming upon the earth, um, it appears to me that the people of the world don't even realize what's happening. But the people of the church do. And they are under severe persecution. Why? Well, because everybody in the world's taking the mark of the beast. And the people of the church are not taking the mark of the beast. So what does Revelation 13 say about that? It says, This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Whoever will go into captivity, into captivity he will go. Whoever will be killed by the sword, with the sword he will be killed. And there's a warning there to the saints who are the saints um, because of, of the things that are taking place. But what I'm saying is in the minds of the people of the world, they're, they're not even aware of this, which comes right from our text in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says they're all going to be saying what? Peace and safety. And then sudden destruction will come upon them. So think about what Paul is saying. He's saying that when Christ comes at the end of the 70th week of Daniel and at the end of the second three and a half years when the religious and economic system of the Antichrist, the mark of the beast and all that's happening, the people in the world are saying peace and safety. They don't even realize this Antichrist has deceived the whole world. Okay? We are going to absolutely know. I mean, when let, let me tell you, the day they try to take your hand <laughs> and put a mark on your hand or your forehead, what are you going to do? <laughs> right? If you've understood Revelation 13, if you've understood from Daniel 7, 8, 11, and 12, the ministry of the Antichrist, let me tell you, us Christians are not going to be unaware, which is what he tells us. You should not be unaware that these things overtake you like a thief. Right, but instead you be what on the alert and you be ready, okay? And so here's what's happening: the Christians are expectantly waiting for Christ. And if you're a dispensational premillennialist or if you're a post-tribber, you believe these things. It's just that in dispensational premillennialism, those saints are tribulation saints. They're people who have been saved after the rapture, who have been left behind. Nevertheless, right? They're warned that they're going to die at the hand of Antichrist because they're not willing to um, 
you know, it says there that he causes all who don't worship the image of the beast to be killed. Right? Revelation 20 tells us of the first resurrection that there's a, a multitude who are raised from the dead who didn't take the mark of the beast or the number of his name and didn't surrender and submit to his thing. So here's this whole time during that time period. They're killing Christians. They're, they're implementing the, the mark of the beast, the whole shooting match. Yet, when Christ returns, they're all saying peace and safety as if they didn't even realize what was happening in this great deception. And those Christians, man, they've just been a stick in the mud. All this time, they've been a, they've been a stick in our side for 6,000 years. Man, let's, let's silence them. Right? You with me? So um, it's amazing, the deception. Paul, Listen, Paul speaks of this deception in language that is very explicit in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 of what this deception will be like on the face of the earth during this time. He says, verse 7 of chapter 2, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one who will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. God sends a powerful delusion that causes the nations to be deceived by the work of the Antichrist. And, and I think part of that deception includes persecuting and killing Christians. I think that's crystal clear in Scripture. In, in many various different passages, not just in one place. And, and that is what happens under the ministry of the Antichrist. And that is what is clearly portrayed in Revelation chapter 13. Yes, ma'am. From what I can understand, both R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur are saying that the beast, the prophet, and the Antichrist are false or anti-Christians to the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then Babylon would be like the false version of the Bride of Christ. And if that's so then Revelation is like a picture of the bride of Christ. It starts out with the seven models kind of showing the true and false brides of Christ. And um, is it possible that Revelation has much more practical implications for the church than... I mean, I, to me it's always been a weird book, but I'm wondering if there's more in it for the church than what we realize. I think it is the most practical instruction the church could possibly have during this period of time. But, for example, John MacArthur, not R.C. Sproul, but John MacArthur teaches that there is no mention of the church between chapter 6 and chapter 19 in Revelation. I disagree with that. I see the church in almost every single chapter. Uh, so, that's... That's correct. The actual word church doesn't appear, but does that mean that the church is not there? And of course, that's the argument. Right? right? So, uh, however, the word ecclesia, as they, they point out, is very clear in chapter 2 and chapter 3 as Christ is writing to the churches in Revelations 2 and, and 3. 
um, in the letter, I'm sorry, the letter to the seven churches in, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the word ecclesia is used there again. Again, right to the church of Ephesus, right to the church of Thyatira, right to the church of Laodicea, right? Uh, so, so your point was you think that Revelation's, uh, Revelation has more practical insight for the church, uh, whereas you seem to think that some writers uh, overlook those practical implications. Well, yeah, it's always been a hard book for me to understand that when you start seeing that, you're seeing the true image versus the false image. This is really, because it says that the beast hates Babylon and Christ loves the church. And it's like you can almost draw a parallel. And then Revelation consummates with the bride, uh, with the wedding of the Lamb. Mm-hmm. There are so many analogies and metaphors in the book of Revelation, mm-hmm. you, you couldn't write them all down on a page. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just, you know, it takes it takes 21 chapters to write down all the metaphors and analogies that are made in the book of Revelation. True? Uh, however, I do think it is very practical. I, I think it is filled with practical instruction for the church, especially the verses I mentioned. Uh, I think it's Revelation 13.10. Take a look at it. Uh, let's just say Revelation chapter 13, verses 7 through the end of the chapter. In my mind, that is the most crystal clear practical instruction for Christians at that time. Uh, that is in the book. So, okay, so I, I left off making this point that the full scope of the events of the day of the Lord cannot happen at the beginning of the millennium. Because if that happens, okay, the whole earth is going to be destroyed and burned up. So I'm saying the way we reconcile that is the day of the Lord is inaugurated at the second coming of Christ but it's not consummated until the end of the age at the great white throne judgment. Okay? Which is also, by the way, when Satan is destroyed, when death is destroyed, and all the wicked are judged. Okay? That's at the same time that the old creation is burned up and destroyed. And the only thing that's left after that is the new creation. Behold, God says, I am making all things new. And there will be no more dying or crying or mourning or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Okay? So, <clears throat> I, can, I think that you can see this timing in some degree in the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 and following, which is on your handout on the top of page 55. Um, there Paul writes and he says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming, then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. In my mind, there is a kind of an overview of eschatology from the cross forward. And he's talking about what when uh, those who are in Christ will be made alive. He says, Christ the firstfruits, he was made alive when? As resurrection, right? Then, those who are Christ at his coming. See that? When did that happen? 2000 at least 2000 years later, right? And then he says, "Then 
comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the Father, when he has destroyed what? All authority and power. When does he do that? He does that here, when he consummates the day of the Lord. And he's destroyed all authority and power. Right there, look, the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. Clearly portrayed at the end of Revelation 20, it says death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so he he destroys all the rebel nations. He destroys Satan right there, and he destroys death. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. So at that great white throne, the last enemy that Christ has will be destroyed. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the Father. That's what he's writing about there in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay. The chart below depicts this concept by viewing a chronology of events spanning from before the second coming of Christ until after the consummation of the ages and the eternal state have begun. Notice the boxes in the upper right explaining the inauguration and the consummation of the day of the Lord. Okay, so we talked about that at length. Therefore, the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night to the unbelieving world, and they will be swept away in judgment, and Christ will destroy the earthly authorities and establish his righteous rule in Jerusalem. In fact, they will be so unaware that they will think all is well and the world's economic problems have been finally solved by the Antichrist's wicked and idolatrous system of supposed economic stability. So here's what I'd like you to do. When you go away this week, I want you to read 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 10. Read it two or three times. I want you to specifically notice what's going on in chapter 5, verses 1 through uh, 6, where Paul is talking about the day of the Lord, and he's saying, uh, you know, look, the day of the Lord is going to come just like a thief. And then he says, when all the people of the world are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them. It gives you insight as to what the people in the world are thinking about at the time that the second coming of Christ happens. They're utterly deceived by what's taking place on the earth. And yet what's happening on the earth is this unbelievable demise of the nations as the Antichrist has caused men to come to this utter and absolute idolatrous rebel system. If you read Revelation 13 and you see the system that Antichrist implements, it's, it's unbelievable. Basically, the guy's going to set up an idol. And he's going to cause everyone in the whole world to worship this idol and take the, the mark of the idol and of himself and of his name and worship this idol. And if anyone doesn't worship the idol, then he causes them to be killed. Okay? This is what's going on on the earth, and yet they seem to be utterly unaware of it. Why? Because the mystery of lawlessness is at work in the world. And God is going to send them a powerful delusion. And those who refuse the love of the truth are going to be deceived by the Antichrist. Okay? And they're going to be killing Christians who aren't going to worship the idol. They're going to be like Daniel and his, and his, uh, his, uh, his, uh, his buddies who didn't want to go worship the idol. So they threw him in the fire. Right? And uh, this amazing thing that's happening on the face of the earth and it seems that the, the world is unawares. 
As a matter of fact, they are so much unaware, the scripture says, they're going to be saying peace and safety and sudden destruction will come like that. They're not going to be aware. Okay, uh, Joyce? Uh, not during the course of Thessalonians. As soon as I finish, I'm open to finish in three weeks. <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some eschatology between the two books, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the millennial reign. So if you have a specific thing you want me to address, let me know, and I, I'll address it for sure, which goes for anybody. If you have something you want me to address concerning these eschatological things, I will do it. Okay, la- last one, Joe. Are you simply asking about how come if Jesus is God, he doesn't know the hour of his return? Yes? That's real simple. Okay? <laughs> Jesus laid aside the attributes of his deity when he was in his humanity. True? Yes. So, so, uh, now he knows, in, in his humanity, at the time that he spoke that, he did not know the day or the hour. True? Mm-hmm. There's no other explanation for it. Obviously, in his deity, he's the omniscient God. True? Mm-hmm. So, okay, let's pray. Our Father God, we, we, we see these unbelievable and magnanimous things in the Scripture. And Lord, our minds can hardly contain it. There is a thousand questions running through our mind and, and a thousand Scriptures. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to, to uh, allow the Scripture itself to define the boundaries and, and the, the time frames and the things that we seek to understand. Help us to have our convictions firmly placed upon texts of Scripture. And Lord, for those things which are just implications, which we wrote, really don't have texts of Scripture to stand on, let us hold those as simply an opinion. But God, the things that your word says so clearly, help us, Lord, to, to build our convictions upon those things. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help us as we seek in in wonder and in awe and in amazement to understand these things that you have told us. And may we not consider them to be unimportant. May we not consider them to be so complex that we can't grasp them. When you have commanded us to grasp them and you have commanded us to be on the alert and to pay attention and not to be deceived concerning these things. God, help us to spend some time reading these passages of Scripture and and learning about the things you have told us about the days to come. We thank you for such a rich revelation of what is uh, yet to come. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.